I recently spent some time with some friends from college over the summer. Now, it wasn't that long ago, but I'm already forgetting things that I did in college. Things that I was involved in. Things I did and said. It's crazy. And I cannot even imagine what some of you more senior brothers and sisters are going through. I think there are things that we all wish our brain could keep track of better. Important dates, stories people share with us, uh, memories with loved ones. We wish that we could remember those things better. But there are also things that we wish our brain did not keep track of so well. You know, why is it that we are so easy to forget wonderful memories, but we have such a difficult time keeping track of all the wrongs people have done to us? Apparently, our brains think it's very important to keep track of other people's wrong and other people's sin. The reality is, I cannot remember some very fun and casual times that I've had with, with good friends of mine. But I'll tell you what, I can still remember how I was left out of a football game in elementary school and how bad that hurt. I can still remember a fight I got into with my brother in middle school. I can still remember how a good friend of mine betrayed me in high school. I have memories of times where I have been wronged and hurt, and we all have memories like this. And the question is, how can we forgive when our brain so easily remembers all the times that we have been wronged and we have been hurt? Friends, I want to proclaim this powerful truth to you. There is nothing more important to the Christian life than forgiveness. There's nothing more important than that. Because if you don't experience forgiveness for yourself, we won't experience the grace that we need to cover all our sin. And if we don't learn to extend forgiveness to others, we will be trapped by a power that will destroy our souls. And today we are continuing our sermon series on unlocking the parables. And Jesus told two stories that give us some keys to forgiveness. They help us unlock forgiveness in our hearts for ourselves and for others. And I, I have one point today that's, gonna, that's for the whole sermon and it covers the, the teachings of Jesus in his parables, and it's this. Radically forgiven people must radically forgive people. Let me say it again. Radically forgiven people must radically forgive people. And the first parable that we're going to look at is called the parable of the unforgiving servant out of Matthew 18. And the context of this is that Peter comes to Jesus and asks a question, and, he's, and he says in verse 21 and 22, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Or in other words, Lord, I've been keeping track. I've been keeping track of how many times my sister has sinned against me. She's up to five times already. Do you think seven times is fair, Lord? Now, Peter might have thought he was suggesting something really righteous. There was a tradition of the rabbis that said you should forgive somebody up to three times, but after that, you did not have to forgive them anymore. So Peter says, well, well seven times, that's a good biblical number. Maybe that would be the, the righteous amount. But Jesus answers him in verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or other translations say 70 times seven. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, stop playing that game. 
Stop keeping track of what other people have done. Just stop holding it against them entirely. Because here is what it looks like when you keep track. And then he tells the story of the unforgiving servant. And it starts with a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. And it says in verse 24, As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Or in the Greek, this is 10,000 talents. Now the talent was the largest measure possible in the ancient uh, Middle East. And it was about 65 to 95 pounds of gold, silver, or copper. And so 10,000 talents of money would be 204 metric tons. I mean, this would be a laughably huge amount of money. Because the average person, the average day laborer, would make one denarii. Now, one talent was 10,000 denarii. So that would be 10,000 days of work to, get, to make one talent. Now, this is 10,000 talents. So this debt for the average person would take 300,000 years to pay off. This would be like someone saying, Okay, David, you alone are responsible for paying off the U.S. national debt. You owe $22 trillion. Good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, that would be impossible. So when it says in verse 25, Since he was not able to pay, of course, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So it's no, we have to pause here and, and think about what this meant. To not glance over this too quickly. This man would be uprooted. He would be removed from his extended family, removed from his job, and he would be a slave to someone else until he paid his debt, a debt he would not be able to pay. So it's no wonder he reacts like he does in verse 26. He falls on his knees. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. In the story, the king is a picture of God, and we are the servant who owed him a huge debt because of our sin. This was a common way that people spoke about sin. They spoke, of, they spoke about it as a kind of debt towards God. When we sin, we get in debt to God. And so this is why you'll, you'll hear in the Lord's Prayer, some versions will say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so this was a common way of speaking about sin. But in the story, the master takes pity on the servant and has compassion on him. And this is how Jesus is often described in the Gospels. He has compassion on the crowds. They are lonely and without a shepherd, and he has compassion upon them. And when he feeds the four and the five thousand, he, he has compassion on them and, and feeds them. And when God sees the great debt that we owe because of our sin, he has compassion on us as well. I want you to imagine that there is a notebook that contained a record of everything you've ever done wrong. I'm talking about the worst things you've ever done, the things that you want no one to know about, and all the little things that you've done wrong over time. All your unholy thoughts, every attitude that was prideful or bitter or envious or excessively angry, every time you were lazy, 
Every time you coveted someone else's possessions. Every time you were greedy. Every time you spent too much money on yourself. Every time you lusted after another person and thereby committed adultery. Every time you lived for an idol and found your worth and significance in something other than God. Every time you took the Lord's name in vain. And every time your speech wasn't holy and you said something you shouldn't have. I think you get the idea. But that is the reality of the record that is against us with God. And on top of that, the status of what I sin against usually has an implication for how serious it is. Now follow me here. If I'm mad at a dog or something and I, and I kick a dog and wound it, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. You could get in trouble for that. But if I kick and wound another person and they have to go to the hospital, that's an even bigger deal with serious consequences. And if I ratchet it up even a notch higher, if I, if I punch a cop or a political leader or someone else who's very important, there's likely going to be even bigger consequences. Brothers and sisters, our sins are not just against each other. In addition to all the ways that we have hurt other people, we have also sinned against the creator of the universe. We have rebelled against him time and time again. We have a great record against us, and it is against the creator of the universe. I think this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? No one could stand. If God was keeping track of, of all the times that we sinned against him, who could ever come into his presence and not be terrified? If we sin against any human being, the amount and the degree to which we sin against God, there is absolutely no way we would, we, we would want to be around that person for fear that they might desire to seek revenge against us. But brothers and sisters, the good news is God has taken that record, that notebook of all your sins, and he has destroyed it through the death of his son on the cross. It says in Colossians 2, 13 through 14, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Hallelujah. God has forgiven you a bazillion, million, kajillion times. You have been radically forgiven through Jesus Christ. At the heart of the good news of the kingdom is, through, is that through Jesus Total and radical forgiveness for sins is offered to the whole world. It's like being forgiven a $22 trillion debt that you can never hope to pay. And this is what happened to servant number one in the parable. He is radically forgiven a debt he could never pay. But then something bizarre happens. In verse 28 it says, When this servant, servant number one, went out, he found one of his fellow servants, number two, who owed him a who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Now this other servant owed servant number one a hundred denarii. And you need to know that there's a huge discrepancy between the two amounts. What the first servant owed, the master, was 600,000 times more than what this other servant owed him. It would be like someone forgiving you $600,000 of debt and demanding someone pay you back 
That would be laughable. That would be ridiculous. But this, what happens in the story is that this fellow servant has the same response that the first servant did before the king. In verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. So he has the servant who owes a small amount of money sent to prison. Well, then what happens is the other servants begin to become aware of what's happening, and they report everything back to the master. And the master finds out about it in verse 32. He calls the first servant in, and he says, You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is a terrifying terrifying passage that we've just heard and I want to start by saying it is almost always unwise to press the details of parables for exact correspondences to reality in the story the man in the parable is handed over to be imprisoned and tortured for his lack of mercy and then Jesus says this is how the father will treat us unless we forgive our brothers and sisters from the heart that is terrifying But the point is not that God has a jail and torturers and that somehow we can pay off a debt by being subject to this punishment. No, no, no. The point is, if we fail to forgive others from the heart, we can expect not to receive mercy for ourselves, but only judgment. Jesus doesn't seem any problem with a God who will freely forgive a massive debt and yet bring judgment on one who does not show any mercy. And this is the consistent picture of God that we get from the Old to the New Testament. And I like what D.A. Carson says about this passage. He says, It is precisely because he is a God of such compassion and mercy that he cannot possibly accept as his those devoid of compassion and mercy. This is part of God's character. And this requirement to forgive, it might be shocking to some of us, but this is standard in Jesus' teaching. We pray this every time we pray Jesus' prayer that he taught us, the Lord's Prayer. We say, forgive us our sins as as we forgive those who sin against us. And this is one of the only places that we have a commentary, an interpretation on the Lord's Prayer from Jesus himself. And it says in Matthew 6, Jesus comments on this part of the Lord's Prayer. He says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. In other words, in light of the forgiveness God offers us, God expects and demands us to forgive other people. And I think what's really scary to me is that many Christians put their eternity at risk Because they refuse to forgive others. They will not speak, they will not make peace, or they will not cooperate with certain people because for some reason they have been wronged. But friends, radically forgiven people must radically forgive others. You know, we could tell countless stories 
of, of Christians who have radically forgiven other people. And I want to remind you of a story that many of you may know or some of you may not, but it's a famous story about a missionary named Elizabeth Elliot. She was married to Jim Elliot, and they were a part of that great group of missionaries who went to Ecuador in the early 1950s to reach the Aka Indians, an unreached tribe with little contact to the outside world. The two had gone to Ecuador separately, Jim and Elizabeth, that is, and they had fallen in love in the field, gotten married, and had a daughter. But then one day, Jim and four other friends were trying to make contact with the tribe, and they were tragically speared to death. I cannot imagine the horror and the suffering that Elizabeth went through. You could likely expect that a young woman like that would, would flee back home, would run away, and would seek justice and revenge against the men who killed her husband. But Elizabeth did not do that. She didn't run away. She, had, she ended up forgiving those men who had killed her husband and her friends. And she ended up serving as a missionary to that tribe for two more years and spreading the love of Jesus to the men who had killed her husband. In her later years, Elizabeth went on to become a writer and a speaker, and she had a, a radio broadcast, and it would almost always begin with this tagline, You are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms. You see, Elizabeth had experienced a radical forgiveness through Jesus Christ. She knew that she had been loved with an everlasting love, and the everlasting arms were holding her up through her whole life. And it's only when you experience that type of radical love and forgiveness that anyone could forgive and go on to live like Elizabeth did. Radically forgiven people are able to radically forgive others. And if Elizabeth can forgive her enemies, surely we can forgive others as well. Because Elizabeth and us, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, who when he was on the cross and being having the nails pierced through his hands and his feet and bleeding and being persecuted, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Our Lord was one who radically forgave people. So how do we do this? How do we follow in the footsteps of our Lord? How do we stop keeping track of everyone's wrongs and begin to forgive? Let me give you a, a few things that might help. Number one, keep the focus on Jesus' grace. Jesus told another parable uh, that's often called uh, the parable of, the, of Simon the Pharisee, or it's about Simon the Pharisee. In the parable, Jesus was invited to stay at Simon's home for a meal, and a woman who is well known as a sinner in the community comes in and begins to weep and have her tears go on Jesus' feet, and she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. And this would have been absolutely scandalous in that time period. And the Pharisee begins to think that Jesus is all wrong for letting this sinful woman be near him. And Jesus knows what's going on, so he tells him a parable. And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And he is correct, Jesus says. You see, Simon's focus was on just how sinful this woman was, but the woman's focus was on how gracious, gracious Jesus was to forgive her sin. Something had happened to her. She had, in some way, she had encountered Jesus. 
Maybe they had a previous conversation. Maybe she heard Jesus' teaching and preaching. For some reason, this woman was moved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And her focus was all on His grace. But unfortunately, we often do the same thing that Simon the Pharisee did. We get so focused on what someone else has done wrong, what someone else has done to us. We say, oh, they are so wrong. They were so hurtful. They were so ignorant, etc., etc. And we turn our focus to them, but what we need to do is to turn our focus and think about the grace Jesus extends to us and to them. So that's the first thing we do. We need, we need to keep the focus on Jesus' grace, not on other sin. Second thing that I find helpful is to consider how much sin you have been forgiven. I think Simon the Pharisee didn't respond rightly because he couldn't see how much he had been forgiven. Sure, maybe technically you could say that Simon had maybe less sins than this woman, but that's kind of like someone saying, man, look how far Chicago and Wheaton are apart. Well, it depends on your perspective. I think if from right here, yeah, Chicago downtown looks like it's pretty far. But from a satellite, they are virtually indistinguishable. They're right next to each other. You see, from God's perspective, we, are, we all fall so far short of His glory. We are all big sinners in need of God's grace. And I like what William Barclay says about this passage. He says, Simon was every bit as bad a sinner as the woman was, and perhaps much worse. But he did not know it. And because he did not know it, he did not feel the surge of love that she felt. You see, we can radically forgive others when we understand how much we've been radically forgiven. One more quote from N.T. Wright. He says, Every time you forgive someone else, you pass a drop of water out of the bucket full that God has already given you. God has given you a bucket full of forgiveness and you just pass a little drop to somebody else. And I want you to know that I don't say all this stuff out of the ivory tower. I've had great difficulty in my life forgiving other people at times. But one thing I do is I think back to all the ways that I have sinned and all the ways that I still fall short. And when I begin to count it up and ask God to forgive me, I can begin to feel the bitterness and resentment melt away and I can extend the grace to them because I realize I have been radically forgiven by Jesus. And finally, the last thing I would encourage you to do is to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. This morning, all I have time for is to talk to you about the grace of God and how we ought to forgive others, how we must forgive others. But I want you to know that there is a distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness does not, does not mean that we trust someone right away who has hurt us. Oftentimes, there has to be a process of reconciliation whereby the parties admit their wrongs, confess their sins, and desire to be reconciled. And if someone won't be reconciled to you, if someone will not repent of their wrongdoing or harmful ways, if someone will not admit that they're wrong and agree to change, reconciled relationship is not always possible, and in some cases, not advisable. But however we understand this process of reconciliation, Forgiveness is required. And not just, oh yeah, I forgive them. No, Jesus says, forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Really mean it. And I want you to notice the genius of Jesus here. Peter had asked him a question to start to give us the context for the parable. 
And Jesus is talking to his disciples. Peter, and Peter is bringing up this, this question of forgiveness in context of people who follow and love Jesus. So he's talking about in the way of the church. And in the church, people will sin against you. You will get hurt in this family. But you have to remember this. Even when we are hurt, you have to remember that in Christ, these people are your brothers and sisters. No matter what, you have to remember, you are family. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. And for this family to keep going until, until Jesus comes again, we have to forgive others from our hearts. And I think we especially need this word in our church today. And we especially need it for our, for our church in a church of about our size that contains people who've been here for a long time. Because the longer you get, you get to know other Christians, you begin to realize that we're, man, we're all so broken. And we all have prickly parts and we all hurt each other in different ways. And we will need to learn to forgive from the heart and extend the grace that we've received. We may not always feel it right away, but the practice of intentionally forgiving others from the heart is the only way for Christian community to work and for your life in Christ to flourish. If we don't forgive others from the heart, then bitterness will only destroy and hurt ourselves. And we put ourselves in danger of forsaking the grace of God that he has so richly poured out on us. Today, there may be people in your life, your family, your school, your workplace, or maybe even in our church that you need to reconcile with. And friends, if there's one thing that followers of Jesus should be known for, it is forgiveness. Radically forgiven people will radically forgive people. And when you do that, you will stop keeping track of how many times someone has wronged you, and you will begin to extend them the greatest act of love. Because the greatest act of love of all time was, was when God took all the record of wrong against us and he nailed it to the cross and he said, you are forgiven. And perhaps the greatest way we can love those around us is to take that mental list of all the ways they've wronged us, to tear it up, throw it away, and let them know they are forgiven. They are loved and they are still family. May God give us the grace to extend this radical grace to others.